Hello and welcome. My name's Stephen Dickens and you're joining us on the Open Mainframe Projects I'm a Mainframer podcast. The Open Mainframe Project is a Linux Foundation collaborative project designed to be a focal point for open source on the mainframe architecture. I'm joined today by one of the biggest names in the mainframe space, uh, Ross Morey, who's the general manager of IBM Z and Linux One at IBM. Nice to see you, Ross. Good to talk. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Stephen. It's great to be here. You know, I love open source and I love mainframes and uh, I couldn't have thought of better, two better topics. So looking forward to it. So, so Ross, one thing we always do, and it almost sounds weird to get you to introduce yourself uh, to the mainframe community, because I'm sure most of them know who you are. But just really, if you can just give us a little bit about your role at IBM, what you do, and just a, a sort of intro, introduction to yourself so we can get the listeners orientated. Sure. So um, I think I'll, uh, I'll, I'll start when I, the day I joined IBM permanently, which I joined to write operating system code in assembly language. And that was my career goal. So I, and I joined in the MVS operating system. So it was really great. I, I met my career goal on day one, 42 years ago. But uh, over time, um, I've done a lot of programming and then I went into management. And uh, I've been very, very fortunate to hold a number of really great management and leadership positions. And right now, for the last six years, I'm the general manager of IBM Z and Linux One, as you said. And that is really, you know, I have end-to-end -end responsibility for that business globally for IBM. Um, you know, the financials, of course, uh, quarterly and yearly. Um, but the strategy, the technology roadmap, the engineering support, um, marketing, sales, you know, all of that in the end uh, comes to me because I'm responsible for the top line and bottom line of this business. And I have to say, it's, it's been a great six years so far. Uh, we've changed a lot of things uh, in IBM Z and Linux One. Well, we created Linux One in the last six years, right? And uh, I'm really happy to be here. It's, uh, it's like I worked for like 35, 36 years preparing myself to do this job and I'm, I'm really loving it. Fantastic. So Ross, there's some things that I know because I've heard you over the years present, which I'd, and, and we've worked together on the Linux side over the last few years. Maybe, it, so I, I've got some background, but love to sort of pull through your association with open source. You mentioned it in the introduction. You've got a particularly interesting background in that space, I think, for, a, for an IBM or and a, and a mainframe person. So if maybe you could just kind of give us a view on your, your role there. Sure. You know, being, being a, what I call a programmer by trade, I was always interested in software. And when open source really took off, I read about it. I didn't participate. I read about it. Um, but then in, uh, in 1998, uh, one of the distinguished engineers from the Berblingen lab in Germany came to me and said, uh, guess what, Ross, we've got Linux up and running on the mainframe, but we don't want to tell anybody because we're going to get in trouble. And I said, well, why are you telling me? And he said, because we want you to tell everyone. Um, and I said, all right. So I, I dug in. I knew a bit about Linux, but I get no hands-on experience. I dug in with him and I saw that we really had something I thought that could be special there. It's one of those things where you're thinking about the future. But if you think back in 98, 99, um, Linux and, and computing was a whole different world back then. 
but I saw the possibility and I love the, you know, machine dependent layer of Linux and things like that. And it really just, it really just struck a chord with me. So I championed it through the business and including some, uh, you know, interesting uh, licenses and things like that, that were uh, not, not only was IBM afraid of them, a lot of companies were, but uh, we cha I championed it and we, we uh, you know, publicly announced uh, Linux on the mainframe. We got Marist College to host the, uh, the Z architecture machine dependent portion of the kernel. Um, they still host it today. So that was a fun beginning. Um, but then things really started to take off with Linux and IBM finally decided to support Linux as a company and be very broad about it. And when Sam Palmisano and Irving made that announcement, um, I got a call the next day from Irving Ladowski Berger and he said, Ross, we're gonna start a Linux unit and we want you to run it. And I was like, I'm all in. So that was a lot of fun. And I, I hired Dan Fry was the first person I hired and he started the IBM Linux Technology Center, which uh, really made, you know, tremendous contributions to, to Linux from an open source point of view. And uh, along that path, um, there was a discussion amongst a number of industry players, HP, Intel, Fujitsu, many others, of that we needed a home, if you would, uh, uh, not, not at not one company, but we needed a home for Linux. And could we start something where we all contributed and created a not-for-profit? And so, so again, reflecting back, the funny thing is that no one in the industry wanted to call this new entity Linux. They didn't want that in the title. So we called it the Open Source Development Lab. And IBM was one of the founding partners and I was the elected as chairman of the board of this new not-for-profit. Uh, and I was chairman of the board for four years. And then I stepped off and allowed Dan Fry actually to come on and take my place because that was the right thing to do. Um, and again, Intel and a lot of others were there from, from day one. Uh, and uh, I love, love, love seeing what the good old OSDL has grown up to. It's grown up to the Linux Foundation, which is absolutely, I think, an essential not-for-profit and place for open source projects. Um, and the Linux Foundation does so many good things in so many, in, on so many dimensions, but uh, I'm really happy that I was kind of part of its roots and that uh, today the Open Mainframe project is obviously flourishing there. So Ross, this show's gonna air sort of early September and that's gonna be a sort of key date for us as we look back at that 20 years. Maybe just give us your own sort of perspective over that 20 year period. You talked about Linux One being launched. That's five years on Monday. Right. We're recording this um, on the on the fourteenth of August. Seventeenth is the fifth anniversary. So, I mean, just give us your own flavor of that journey over the last sort of twenty plus years. Yeah, the the first five years were, I would say, really experimenting, working with clients on proof of concept, proof of technology, finding out things that we needed to go after within the Linux kernel for scalability, RAS, security, whatever, um, and trying to figure out, you know, what workloads would really fit best on a mainframe. Um, and, and, you know, and then I'd say then the next 10 years, so I'll go from the first five years to years five to 15, was really an amazing expansion of Linux within the, within the mainframe footprint globally. Um, and a lot of server consolidation, database consolidation uh, went on in that time. 
Um, but also there was a lot of open source that wasn't supported on the platform on Z. Um, and also, um, you know, we, I think we we're kind of limited, but, but great success for the limits that we had. Great success, as you know, more than half of the mainframe clients in the world today also run Linux on Z, right? But then it's these last five years where we've uh, really changed the game. And uh, I'm really happy that I, I've been part of that. It's been a lot of fun um, and it's kind of scratching an itch that I always wanted to uh, scratch. So uh, I knew that having a Linux only mainframe, the Linux one, would be a good idea. Um, I knew that we had to really, really bring more open source packages, runtimes, management frameworks, um, no SQL databases, SQL databases, you name it. We needed to have a lot more open source on the platform and, and, and we've done that over the last five years. There's, there's so much now available and supported. And I also know, knew that we needed to take now take this and move from server consolidation into real new workloads. And so things like blockchain um, and confidential computing and there's a lot of workloads now that no one would have ever expected would, would run on a mainframe. But now not only do they run here, but I would argue that they run the best. If you, want, if you care about performance and security, then this is your best home. If you don't care about performance and security, then there's other homes as well. So it's been a great journey. The last five, have, we've really stepped on the accelerator though. And again, our expansion across the globe with, with uh, Linux on Z or Linux One has just been phenomenal. So it's interesting, Ross, you mentioned something there that's probably a segue into the next section. You mentioned security and, and you, you coined the phrase confidential computing. I know what we're trying to do in that space, but I think for our listeners, it'd be really interesting for you to maybe expand. When you say confidential computing, kind of what do you mean and, and just unpack that for us? Well, there is a whole industry initiative around confidential computing and, and I'll tell you what it means to me though. What it means to me, is that your data and your code, but especially your data, can be locked down so tight that no one can get to it or access it except for you with the right cryptography keys. Not a system admin with high privilege, not a, not a container admin, not, not, not anybody. Um, you know, so compromise credentials and insider attacks that we know take place well, we see that they take place every week. They probably take place every day and they're just not public, right? There's lots of breaches going on. Confidential computing, when properly implemented, is going to eliminate those attack vectors and the leakage of that data so that people's data, whether it's corporate data that has great financial value or it's personal data or it's medical data, it can really be locked down. That's what it means to me. And um, what... What I, what I really going for though is confidential computing alone won't solve the problem. So we've got our own, we've got our own secure enclave technology within Z. In fact, we released the fourth generation of that technology that we, we've been working on for 10 years. So the fourth generation was, in, was released this year. It's running great. Um, but what you have to do with that, when, especially when you're in a cloud environment, is you have to wrapper it so that there's, it's technically impossible for anyone to break in. If you look at today's cloud environments, there's administrative control and they have what's called operational assurance that someone can't get to your data. Operational assurance means I signed a contract 
And therefore I'm trusting the company that's hosting my data to follow the terms of the contract and not allow access, even though it's technically possible. And as you see, again, the insider threat is the biggest threat to compromise today. It's whether the person is bad or the person is blackmailed or compromised or their credentials get stolen through phishing or other social engineering and somebody gets in because they've got their credentials. They've got admin credentials, right? Well, if you really implement confidential computing correctly and have it have the right wrappers around it end to end, you can technically assure that no one can get to your data. So in the IBM public cloud today with our HyperProtect services, which by the way are all, it's a PaaS set of services, they're all based on Linux One, they all run, it runs globally. Um, you can do things like you can keep your own key, right? So as a, bring your own key is interesting. When you bring your own key, the cloud vendor takes over control of that. I don't know if you knew that. When you keep your own key, it's your key and no one takes control of it. Only you have access. So if I lock down your data today in the, in the IBM public cloud, Stephen, with HyperProtect, um, and, the, uh, and the US government came to us with a subpoena and said, we need to see Stephen's data, IBM can't get to it. The only way they can get to it is through you because you have the key. So confidential computing to me is technical assurance that no one can access your data and keeps your data private. So Ross, that's, I mean, that's, and you've articulated it really well. And I think that confidential computing is kind of where we're going to see the industry going. Where do you see the mainframe in that? So I think, you know, specifically maybe go down that one layer into the, because we've got a relatively technical audience who kind of likes to geek out on this stuff. <laughs> so maybe if you would just sort of, what specifically have you driven the teams to do to give us that unique capability? Right. So the, the, the IBM Z has been known for its security for decades, and that's been built around our core banking, right, and, and financial services customers that have to have everything locked down. Um, and so let's just take our, our HSM, you know, it's the, it's the highest grade, highest uh, rated uh, commercial uh, HSM that there is, right, um, in the industry. And a lot of the other, again, I'm not going to get in deep into all the technologies, but the security technologies that we've had for banking, but, but I would say had in a proprietary way for banking to lock down those workloads. We've now taken those technologies and make sure they can be, they can either be accessed via Linux or a Linux workload payload running in one of our secure enclaves can inherit that security. And so again, in our, in our secure enclaves, all the data can be, can be um, uh, encrypted without any hit to performance. And, and I don't care how many gigabytes you wanna encrypt a second or decrypt, we, we can just handle that. So that's an important thing, it's throughput, how fast can you do it? But another thing then is what standards are you following? So obviously we're following all of the key industry standards for encryption, but we're also investing ahead, Stephen, so we've got post-quantum cryptography algorithms already in some of our HSMs that we're trying out. And as you know, NIST hasn't uh, yet uh, selected the final, the final algorithms that will be the standard for cryptography in the post-quantum era. But 
Um, IBM happens to have, I think there's seven that have been down selected to the final seven or so. Two of them are IBMs. They're all lattice-based uh, algorithms. So whatever one gets chosen, whether it's IBM's algorithms or someone else's, we've, we've already experimented with lattice-based uh, encryption and cryptography. We know how to do it and we're working hard. Uh, the next generation mainframe is gonna be post-quantum safe. And I think that that's gonna be a big step. So where was I going with that? We started with banking technology that was really proprietary. We brought it into the open world so it can be accessed easily, managed easily through platform as a service um, in a cloud environment. And we're investing ahead of the curve because no one knows when quantum computers are gonna be big enough and stable enough to actually break the cryptography algorithms of today. Some people say it's in the next five years, others say it's in the next 20 years. Uh, I don't really care. I want to have my data secure for the day that it does, that they, that they do, the quantum computers are that big and that stable, and they, they're in the wrong nation state's hands or, their, or criminals' hands. So um, we're investing for the future. Now, within our secure enclave technology, we've done a number of things. I said we're on our fourth generation. We've really made it so that we've got a we've got a DevSecOps pipeline set of tools, so you can very easily, you know, compile and bring together your your applications and your data, and you can insert it in a, in a in a confidential and secure and signed way, so that you I know that my code when it goes in there hasn't been touched by anybody, and I know I I know that the secure enclave it's in, whether it's the hardware the microcode, the millicode, the virtualization layer, whatever's in there is also signed and secured. So it's about security, 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 and locking every single step of the element, every element in the stage stages down. So um, again, we've, we, could, we could probably talk for hours and you should probably get Marcel on here to, uh, to go real deep if everybody's interested in that. But uh, I think confidential computing is what's needed today. It's, it, it is what's needed in the cloud and on-prem. And I'm really glad that IBM's a leader in this area. So Ross, we are, you have some fun on Twitter. And if anybody's not following Ross on Twitter, they absolutely should <laughs> at Ross Morey. Uh, I'm, I'm always amazed that you find the time to engage so much with the audience out there. But we, we, we had some fun with this and posted um, out that we try and crowdsource Mm -hmm. uh, in the spirit of open source, we'd, sure. crowds we'd crowdsource some questions. So one of the ones that came through from Pat Moorhead, who's um, one of the founding partners of um, More Insights and Strategy, it relates back to what you were just saying about confidential computing, Ross. So I'll, I'll ask Pat's question. Many companies claim they have confidential computing. What makes IBM's version special? I, I think it's this. I think that... Um, all, all of the claimed confidential computing environments out there still have security holes in them. And, and they're not that hard to find what they are in the different layers. Um, and some of them are very restricted by say, how, how big of a payload you can have in there, how big of a database, how big of an application. So the memory spaces aren't that big. Ours is um, extremely large uh, memory size, payload size. Uh, it's, you know, how many, how many, how many terabytes do you want? I mean, this thing, these things can grow up very big. Um, the second thing is I talked about this end-to-end -end implementation so you can have trusted computing. 
Um, no one's actually implemented that yet but IBM. So um, it's one thing to have the core technologies in the microprocessor and the virtualization layer and the container level, et cetera. It's, it's another thing that then to wrapper it all together so it can be secure end to end and basically guaranteed security. So the difference is, is that, again, we've been working in this area literally for 10 years. This is our fourth generation, as I said. So we've, we know what holes are in everybody else's and we've made sure that we fixed all of them. And we have red teams all the time, uh, including the IBM uh, X-Force uh, red team, uh, doing pen testing and other types of testing to ensure that, uh, that they can't get in. And I'm happy to say that uh, they haven't been able to get in. So it's been a pretty good journey so far. So that's interesting. I didn't know that you were gonna make that claim. That's a good one, Ross. Um, one of the other questions came through from an IBM and Mark Martin, um, and it goes back to what you were saying about quantum. So ask Ross, will quantum replace compute power in data centers, making them become storage warehouses? So kind of general question, yeah. but interested to kind of get your view. It made me think so. I'd be keen to see your response. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I um, you know, I, I can't look a hundred years out, but from what I know of quantum computers today, and they are very powerful, and we have, I've, you know, we have an, I have an active research program that I call Z plus Q, which is literally how do we hook a quantum computer directly into an IBM Z and treat it as an accelerator. And where I'm going with this is um, quantum computers are very, very, very good at some things and they're terrible at others. And they're not, they're not gonna replace one for one um, traditional computing, right? Um, so I think the, the computing paradigm for as far as the people that I talk to you can see, let's look out 30 to 50 years, is there's gonna be classical computers and they're gonna be connected to quantum computers. Think of the quantum computers as a really, really fast accelerator that are really good at certain types of algorithms like Monte Carlo, right? They're, they're really good at some things. So I can see the Z plus Q for our commercial clients, let's say banks, um, being tightly coupled and the operational data is on the Z, but then when they wanna do some kind of super fraud analytics or something like that, they package the data, you shoot it over the quantum computer, it does its, it does its work in lightning speed, it comes back and gives you that answer, an answer that might've taken if you did it in classical computing you know, a decade to do, right? Quantum computer can do it in, in mere seconds or less than that. And so I see them, I see this um, collaboration, if you would, this connection and collaboration between classical computing and quantum computing really being the powerful thing for business. Again, as far as the people that I talk to, again, for the next 30 to 50 years, and I can't look 100 years out, I don't, I don't know who can. That's interesting, Ross. And it leads on to the next sort of question that came from Alex Kim from one of our business partners, Vicom Infinity. Um, so his question was, what did we learn from our many attempts to emerge, to merge other technologies into Zed? And can we expect something again soon? He, he mentioned cell processors in 2007. Yeah maybe perhaps a GPU. So maybe can you give so, that perspective? Yeah, absolutely. He's actually, he didn't realize it, but he's actually already seen it. So what we learned from some of those experiments was that we can put other processors, accelerators, right onto the microprocessor. 
So in Z14, right, we put a, a crypto engine right on the microprocessor to do bulk encryption, right? 16 gigabytes a second per core. <laughs> Go ahead and feed the beast all you want, right? So, but that, that was putting a processor on a processor. We put a compression processor on. We've put a sort processor on. And in the future, we'll put an AI processor on. So, um, you know, for inference. So we've al he's already seeing it. He just didn't realize it. We learned a lot from those experiments. And we did learn that we can actually, the technology is dense enough today that we have, and we have the real estate to actually put coprocessor or accelerator function right onto the microprocessor. And therefore, you're getting the, you know, the great benefits of an accelerator, but it's like done almost in line with the instruction stream for the rest of the processing. One of the other questions that came through was from Timothy Sipples out in our team in Singapore. Um, and it was a great question. I, I'm looking forward to your answer on this one. What's the most interesting recent example of a mainframe operator using their machine in some particularly clever way to solve an otherwise tough or impossible pro pro problem. So basically, what's the biggest recent mainframe yeah. use case surprise? Well, I won't say it's the, the intern that was working on the bank that brought the jars for a game and had a, and had a, a test partition and uh, I won't say which game it was, but dropped them in there and they, they ran like mad. But anytime you use a banking computer to play games on, that's always an interesting one. But, but uh, this was an interesting one. So um, one of our PhDs in research, he's actually the head of IBM Z research for me, Donna Dillenberger, um, ran an interesting experiment. So there was out in the university world, there was a, comp a biomedical competition uh, from several, and lots of, it was kind of an open competition. And there was a set of uh, biomedical problems that the genomic problems that they wanted to solve. And uh, the students had a certain amount of time and they were given, you know, the test uh, data and, and they had a, they had a set of uh, algorithms and suites, but they could, they could make up whatever they wanted to. And where I'm going with this is not so much about the competition, but what the, what the com competition asked for was for different companies to put up clouds that could be used for this competition over a week, right? So Donna put up a very large Linux mainframe cloud with hundreds of virtual servers. And the experiment was, let's see if any of them realize that they're running on a mainframe. Let's see how transparent this is. Because you and I know Linux is Linux is Linux, but a lot of people out there and uh, the uninformed out there in the world think that Linux on Z is something different. But this was kind of like, let's, let's do this blind and let's see if we can, if someone can figure it out. So we put it out there and a week later, lo and behold, the winning team happened to use our cluster. It was, it was kind of random how the teams got assigned to different companies loaned clusters of, of these VM servers and the winning team came back and, and they were interviewed and they said, well, why'd you win? They said, well, we don't know, but um, when we ran our models, they literally ran twice as fast or faster than we were, what we were used to. And so we were able to iterate on our, on our hypothesis and our modeling of what we were trying to prove out in this, you know, this genomic uh, sequencing thing they were doing, prove it out much faster. And so we just, we just made a lot more progress over that time, the time that was allowed than the other guys. So the interesting thing for me there is 
all these medical students that obviously know by they know informatics information systems as well right the programming um, none of them reckon realized they were on anything but a normal Linux system um, but they noticed wow it's way faster so that to me is one of the coolest things that happened in in recent years that's a great story. I've not heard that one. I need to, I need to remember that one for my own talk track, but that's, I'm going to come back to you on more details on that. That's, that's an interesting one, Ross. Um, it gives me a great segue into the next section. One of the questions I always ask of the guests on the show, and, and you mentioned some of the sort of students and academic community that gather around the platform. What advice would you give to your younger self? So we go back to Ross Maury age, sort mm -hmm. of 20, 21, 22, and you've got the ability to go back and give your younger self some advice, what would it be? Um, that's an interesting question. I, I, um, you know, I was, I came to IBM because I viewed it as the biggest sandbox in the world that I could, that I could scratch my itch of programming. And it was, and um, there's lots of good companies out there where you can do hardcore, you know, operating system level programming. Um, but what the advice I would have given myself is to probably stay technical a little bit longer. I was technical and did programming and test and design and all that stuff for about six and a half years. And if I had, uh, if I were to go back and talk to my, and then I went into management, when you go into management, you really don't do anything anymore, right? You, you, it's not an honest job. The honest job is when you code. But um, I, would have, I would tell myself to uh, even learn more about coding. Because uh, I think e even when you're in senior management, like I am now, the more you understand about your business, our, my business is IBM Z. I mean, there's other analogies out there everywhere, whether you're in the cloud business or you're in biomedical or you're in banking, but know more about how your business really works. So that, way, so that if your career goal is to be a manager, be an executive, run a business, be a CEO, the more you know about how it works on the ground, uh, the better leader you're going to be because you'll be able to relate to people. And I say that because I see people that don't actually have good technical backgrounds and they try to run technical teams. And it's, I'm, they're good leaders, but you, know, you just can't help the teams enough as a leader unless you can really understand. You don't have to understand every bit and bite that they're coding, but I mean, understand what they're doing and be able to relate to them. So it's that being able, I can still relate to the hundreds and, or thousands of developers that work for me that write millicode, write microcode, write operating system code, write middleware code and database code, right? And, and cloud and cloud framework, cloud, uh, cloud orchestration code, because I had a technical background and I, and, I, and I use it. And so my advice to myself is I would have, should have stuck it out another three, four years and just learn that much more before I went into management. That's interesting. I think that's great advice for some of our sort of younger listeners who are maybe starting to put their feet on their first career path. So no, thank you for that, Ross. I've, I've asked this question over the last couple of years of guests, for, of guests at the show, and I'm really looking forward to asking it to you. So one of the questions I ask is, look into your crystal ball. You've got that classic crystal ball we see in the movies. Where do you see the next three to five years of the mainframe going? Where do, what, what do you see as the future, as much as you're able to talk about, Ross? Sure. Well, um, the truth is we're, we're working on what we're going to ship in the next six years already. 
right? We always work on the next two generations of, of system. So Z15 is out there, and today we're working on Z next and Z next next. Now I'm not going to tell you what technology it's going to be in and all the details, but I'll tell you the areas that we're going to make great strides in. So I already talked about AI, great strides in AI. Um, we're going to make great strides in, from a software point of view in bringing full open source cloud native development tool set to ZOS. It's already on Linux. I want to take all those great tools that everyone uses for Linux and make it so that the programmers of tomorrow can really uh, leverage those open source tools uh, when, regardless of what language it is. Could be COBOL, which I know some people think is ancient, but it's actually a pretty good language still, but it could also be Python or Go or Swift or Java. I mean, whatever language you're going to run on your mainframe. Um, and then another thing we're working very hard on is uh, hybrid cloud integration and IBM cloud integration. So hybrid cloud to me means really connecting clouds. And, and it means that's done by Kubernetes containers. Um, and that, and you know, in a new in the new programming paradigm, services oriented programming paradigms. So we're going to work a lot on hybrid cloud integration. We've already done a lot in the last year, but but there's always more to do. Um, and then I think um, there's some really interesting things that um, that we can extend to the cloud. Things that um, if you're a bank and you run on premises today, you kind of depend on it but some of those paradigms don't exist in the cloud yet. We're gonna bring a lot of the paradigms for, for um, recovery, disaster recovery, other types of, of uh, compute paradigms, again, that, that classical big businesses rely on. We're gonna bring that to the cloud because we think we've got a leg up because again, our technology, we know that our technology works. We know the algorithms in it. We know what, what bugs we've had to fix. We know what, what things didn't work. And so my team working with the IBM public cloud team are going to bring, we brought together the hyper-protect services, but uh, we've got a lot more up our sleeve. So the answer is there's more open source in our future. There's more cloud in our future and there's more AI in our future. And I already mentioned, we're going to make sure that everything's safe, quantum safe. Fantastic. I think that's a great answer, Ross. I think, I'm looking forward to seeing that journey over the next three or four years. From what I can see from what you've said, it's going to be an exciting few years. I think this has been a fantastic, what are we, almost 40 minutes now. I think I could carry on interviewing mm -hmm. you, but we probably want to keep it to a, a section where the the, uh, the listener can consume this. So, Ross, was, is, is there any parting comments, anything else you'd like to share with the listeners kind of before we wrap? Um, I would just say, um, especially for those of you that are still coding, get out there and code. There's a Linux community cloud if you want a free place to go and play for a while. Um, there's lots of other tools, many of them free, but, but please get out there and code. Learn about the mainframe, learn about its strengths, learn about what it's really good at and which workloads you really should put on a mainframe, whether it's on-premises or it's in the cloud. Fantastic. Ross, that's been a really interesting uh, few minutes we've got to spend together today. I think it's our listeners are going to find this interesting. So thanks for joining us on the show. You, you've been listening to Stephen Dickens interview Ross Morey on the I'm a Mainframer podcast. You're going to be listening to this show in the first week of September, which is a week 
before the Open Mainframe Summit, which is on the 16th and 17th of September. Please go to openmainframeproject.org to register. And thank you for listening to the show.